Tragic story on Sunday of Isaiah Andrews, who spent 45 years in prison for killing his wife, protesting all the time, finally proved his innocence, and just a month ago was declared completely innocent and ability to get his reparations from the state, and he died before he could do so. It's very, very sad. This guy lost his entire life and spent most of it blamed for the death of his wife, which was not on him. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn on a Monday with Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. It was cold yesterday. Did you get outside? <sighs> only only enough to go back in. <laughs> I, I got warm playing tennis um, in the afternoon, but I had lacrosse games in the morning, and I was like, I'm wearing two coats, and it's April 10th. This seems wrong. <laughs> You were you weren't playing lacrosse. You were I was not playing lacrosse. lacrosse. I was watching my son's lacrosse game. It's not hockey season anymore. Okay, let us begin. How is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's selection of Sam Randazzo as the state's utility chief looking more and more suspicious, especially now that First Energy has admitted bribing Randazzo with millions of dollars? Laura, this this circle keeps tightening around our governor. It does. He was warned before he appointed Randazzo. He was given an entire dossier on him. And DeWine's spokesman has has corroborated this, but a former DeWine campaign staffer named J.B. Haddon, he's an attorney, he called DeWine to express his concern about appointing Randazzo to chair the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. Then Haddon met with the chief of staff and three other DeWine staffers on January 28, 2019. This was days after he called to lay out those concerns. And, I mean... He still appointed him about a week later anyway. It, what's, what's amazing about this, the, the Ohio Capital Journal did a story that talked about a part of this. And what we published over the weekend was a fairly big expansion of it. He had strong advice. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. Don't put him in. He has too many ties. There's something wrong with this guy. And he put him in anyway, despite knowing all of that. And they're giving these feeble excuses now like, well, you know, that wasn't very credible. Obviously, it was more than credible. The guy ended up being a crook, even though he's not charged with a crime yet. Uh, and and DeWine looks terrible here. He he knew not yeah. to do it. He did it anyway. What does that say for Mike DeWine's relationship with First Energy? I mean, his whole thing is, well, we thought that was in the past. We, we understood that he was coming out of retirement. And there was some concern that J.B. Haddon was not completely genuine in his concern because he was doing work for AEP, which is a different utility that's involved with dark money uh, groups. So you know, has his own thing here. But, you know, they had this 198-page dossier, two binders worth of documents, which claimed to show evidence of Randazzo's opaque, undisclosed financial ties to First Energy. It had court cases, tax documents, other information that was collected by opponents of Randazzo, including environmental groups. They didn't explicitly accuse Randazzo of receiving the bribes, but said he was funneling money from a First Energy subsidy through a, or sorry, sub, subsidiary through a secret company to buy real estate like that to me raises enough legs that you're like you know what there are 11 million people in ohio 
I could probably find somebody better to head what is supposed to be keeping all of the residents of Ohio safe and fair from their utilities. And we now know that at the very time he was thinking about this, Randazza was getting $4 million that First Energy says was a bribe. In addition to what? Another $10 million they were paying him for some kind of services rendered. I mean, this You're right. The red flags are everywhere. Why not go with somebody with no red flags? But the fact that he stuck with him is very telling. I wish the federal prosecutors would finally drop the additional indictments that are sure to come. Because if there are any more revelations about Mike DeWine's relationship with First Energy, the voters should know before November when he's up for re-election. I completely agree. And it just another thing that you're just like, why is Sam Randazzo not charged here? Why is Chuck Jones not charged? It is frustrating to wait this long. It's going to be, what, two years in July? And we're waiting, still waiting for that other shoe to drop? I... I don't know. I, I think the, the more we learn about this, the shadier it seems. And, and, it, and you know, we never talked about Mike DeWine specifically as being, like, overly loyal. Like, he, he seems to surround himself with people who generally know what they're doing. But this one just, it makes no sense. No, it makes no sense unless there's some kind of sinister relationship that we still have yet to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the Ohio Supreme Court considering contempt citations for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and other Republican leaders, what might that look like based on Ohio history and what has happened in other states? Lisa, it's pretty clear that my dream of these guys sitting in orange jumpsuits in a jail cell is not to be. But what are the potential results of a contempt citation? Well, the bottom line is, Chris, is that Supreme Court judges in the state level are pretty reluctant to hold anybody in contempt of court. And that especially goes for other branches of government due to, you know, the separation of powers. They don't want to look like they're, you know, doing that. Uh, but when lawmakers are threatened with contempt, they often call it legislating from the bench or, the, or that the Supreme Court is overstepping its bounds. But if lawmakers are threatened with contempt and they ignore it, it, it impacts the court's authority. So it's kind of like a weird catch-22 there. It's like, you know, they, they don't want to hold you in contempt. Lawmakers know that, so they behave badly. But uh, here in Ohio, we have a local case, the long-running and infamous DeRolf versus the state of Ohio. That was a lawsuit against school funding that was filed way back in 1991. There have been four rulings made by the Ohio Supreme Court um, that made it unconstitutional. Um, they considered sanctioning lawmakers at that time, which requires a ruling of contempt before you can sanction them. Uh, Andrew Tobias talked to three former Ohio Supreme Court justices. Uh, Justice Alice Resnick uh, said at a teachers union conference on April 2001 that jail and fines are all part of the contempt process. Former Justice Paul Pfeiffer said he privately suggested other an order prohibiting the legislature from spending money until the funding bill is passed. Yeah, I guess fines are what the, the worst these guys could could go in for and they don't seem that worried about it. I mean, they made a hard argument that they shouldn't be found in contempt, but they haven't done what the court ordered. And so the court's authority is at question. It's going right. to be, it'll be fascinating to see whether they actually take action. Ha, ha, our story discussed some things that have happened in other states. Have there been right. some more severe repercussions there? 
Right. In 2015, uh, the Washington Supreme Court was overseeing the state, another state school funding case. What they did was they imposed fines on the legislature of $100,000 a day that requires, you know, there, there's a law in their constitution in Washington that says schools are required to be fully funded. So they use that to impose these fines. And finally, uh, lawmakers finally increased school funding in 2015. 2018, and then ended up paying a $105 million fine. Well, we will know soon, I suspect, what the ramifications are here or if our elected leaders are held in contempt. It'll be a conversation we're sure to have later in today in Ohio. How is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish's nomination of Union Chief Dave Wondolowski to the Port Board playing out with community organizations, which have sharp memories of Wondolowski's role in trying to torpedo the candidacy of Justin Bibb for Cleveland mayor? Layla, we talked about how offensive this seemed to be to Justin Bibb. Seems like we're not the only ones that thought so. Yeah, this isn't going, <laughs> this isn't going over well with a lot of people. A little backstory for listeners who might have missed last week's podcast on this. Mayor Bibb, he doesn't like labor leader Dave Wondolowski, and he shouldn't because this guy was a part of that dark money campaign that tried to take him down with an ad that many people believe was racist in nature. And he made that really awful comment at the Kevin Kelly campaign event when he said, we're going to kick the S out of Justin Bibb in the election. We're going to kick the S out of the media before then pointing out a specific reporter in the audience and saying, we're talking about you in this very Trumpian way. So not surprisingly, Bibb didn't reappoint Wondolowski to the Port Authority Board when his term came to an end this month. And then in a stroke of incredibly poor judgment, Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish uses one of his appointments to the board to recommend that Wondolowski be reinstalled to the board last week. And he says his la- that Wondolowski's labor connections and his experience make him a good choice. For heaven's sake, I mean, what the heck? So on Friday, 21 community organizations come together to draft this open letter to Budish just tearing him to pieces for this decision. And the co-signers included the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus, the Cuyahoga County Women's Caucus, Black Lives Matter Cleveland, Service Employees International Union, Local One, Office um, Office and, and Professional Employees International Union, Local 1794. Other groups were adding their names as our story was going to print. Their message to Budish was really strong. They said, Quote, to call Mr. Wondolowski's statements destructive understates the damage that such rhetoric causes when not addressed or worse yet, rewarded. It's especially confounding that you would appoint such a divisive figure to the board of the Port of Cleveland after a mayor who received a massive mandate from Cleveland voters declined to do so. Well, and let's point out, too, Justin Bibb did appoint a different labor leader to the Port Authority. So labor is represented. Mm -hmm. Look. It does appear Armin Budish is going out the door. He's not running again. Just slapping people. I mean, he's doing some venal things. He looks like he's trying to spend every dollar the county has before the next administration comes in to hamstring them. We've talked about that. This was the definition of venality. There's, there is no reason to appoint Wondolowski to the Port Authority except to slap Justin Bibb and his supporters. You know, clearly Bill Mason, Budish's chief of staff, was, was a Kevin Kelly supporter and 
is close to Dave Wondolowski, and they're feeling chastened by how badly their candidate got beaten by Justin Bibb. But what is the point of I doing know. this? You're just being divisive. Well, and also, this choice of Wondolowski has to be approved by county council. So now he's putting county council between a rock and a hard place because, you know, Armin Budish is going to be skating out the door soon, and then the county council has to work with Justin Bibb. And has to, you know, they have to get along. They have to be partners on a lot of things. And and they have this bad blood between them if they go ahead and approve this appointment. <laughs> and but Layla, I, I would argue they're, they're between a rock and a marshmallow. There is a really <laughs> easy path here. Tell Armin Budish, no, we're not going to play into your venal decisions. Remember, this, remember, there's some members of council that learned from our story in December that he had created a revenge plan because he felt like they weren't supporting him and he was going to take money away from their wards for roads and bridges. He was going to punish taxpayers because their elected representative wasn't saluting him and in lockstep with him. So the county council, there's some members of county council that don't owe him anything. Say no. That's true. I mean, they don't owe him anything anyway. Right. (laughs) Right. They owe the taxpayers and the residents and the voters sound judgment. And clearly putting Dave Wondolowski on there, as these community groups are saying, is not sound judgment. Story is sure to continue. It's Today in Ohio. What did black judges tell us the long term ramifications might be for children growing up today? From the confirmation of the nation's first black woman U.S. Supreme Court justice, Laura, we took a couple of days to go out and talk to people about how much they think this would mean to children who might be imagining their careers. And it was a pretty emotional story. The people felt so passionately about it. What did they tell us? Yeah, absolutely. These are some incredibly moving thoughts that collected by Alexis Oatman and Corey Schaefer, who talked to a wide array of, of judges in Cleveland and uh, and attorneys as well. And I think Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court Judge Cassandra Collier-Williams said it really well. She said, it doesn't limit us. So often we feel limited to just the trial court level or the court of appeals level. This gives us a lot more to aspire to. And they said Jackson's variety of experience, her background as a federal public defender, and her cultural and professional diversity, they bring a lot to the bench. She's earned bipartisan praise for the way that she handled herself during the questioning of her confirmation through the senators and really just impressed everyone. And this is a huge day because the court went from 1790 until 1967 without a black person on the court. Thurgood Marshall was confirmed then. And Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman justice in 1981. So, I mean, huge, huge accomplishment here in about time. Well, and what they really got across was the idea that a lot of people have grown up without anybody looking like them being on the Supreme Court, which would be limiting if nobody ever Mm -hmm. had. And when finally somebody does who looks like you and get into that position, it means the doors are open. Absolutely. And it just says, you know, it shows that, you know, young black girls, they can do anything they want to to do. And obviously, look at the vice president. We had a really nice picture that ran on Saturday's Plain Dealer that had um, Judge Jackson and the vice president behind her. And it's like, look, look, this is the face of the United States. And that's really nice to see. 
I think a really a great lesson that's being conveyed to black women or anybody with the the Jackson confirmation hearings is grace under pressure. Uh-huh. You know, she, you know, and you know, it's often said if you're a black woman, you have to be so much better than anybody else just to begin with. So, yeah. you know, I think that's part of the lesson too. Yes, you can get there, but you're going to have to have a tough skin as we saw from the confirmation hearings. You're so right, Lisa. Right. She was subjected to the most ridiculous line of questioning, largely from Republican men, just asking her, you know, almost obscene questions. And her facial expressions at times were priceless. Like you could see in her face, (laughs) you've got to be kidding me. I'm I'm up to be on the highest court in the land. And these are the idiotic questions you're throwing at me so you can get your sound bites for your campaigns. She and she was the perfect example of grace under pressure. While Kavanaugh cried like a baby. I just, I was thinking of that, like, and and got so angry, right? Like, how dare you question me? Like, how dare you? And instead, it, I mean, I don't know that you could have expected line of questioning about, like, pedophilia, but, like, you know, she she didn't give in to that kind of pressure. And you're right. I think, and, and some of the judges that Alexis and Corey talked to said you have to be better you know, way better than anyone and, and to rise above the partisanship to get the votes from the Republicans that this shows how qualified Judge Jackson is and how respected, right? Okay. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did the death rate in Ohio compare to the rest of the nation during the pandemic? And where does Cuyahoga County stand? Lisa, we were talking before the podcast that I was at the Rock Hall over the weekend and it was packed like a cattle car and there were very few people wearing masks, which makes you wonder how much this new Omicron variant is going to spread. But Ohio didn't do that well in the previous incarnations. We're number eight in mortalities as far as states go. Yeah, we were the eighth highest in mortalities uh, from 2019 to 2020. We had a little over 10 deaths per thousand people back in 2019. That rose to 12.25 in 2021. That's a 21% increase. Now, some counties like the Appalachian counties, uh, you know, that are down in the southeast part of the state, there were up to 16 mortalities per thousand people there. But if you take a look at Cuyahoga County, it's even worse. I mean, Cuyahoga County, as far as counties go in the United States, was number three. We had 12.85 deaths per thousand people, and we were behind only Pinellas County, Florida, which is Tampa, and Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So yeah, not looking good in Cuyahoga. Of course, uh, we talked to Richie Piparinen. I think I'm saying that right. I don't know. He's the Cleveland State University. Director of Urban Theory and Analytics, and this these figures that I'm talking about came from a CSU study of U.S. states and counties, and he said COVID was actually an instigating event. He says this kind of really highlighted that there's been decades of growing health problems, and COVID just kind of brought it to a head. Yeah, and we, we should be clear, we're not talking about raw numbers here. We are talking about the rate, and Ohio's rate was really high. Correct. New Yorker had a piece in its latest issue that also pointed out that the deaths are seriously undercounted because there are so many resulting deaths, people who couldn't get medical treatment, people who didn't get tested for things like cancer that might have been able to be saved earlier, that the the true death toll will probably never be known because 
because of all those other factors, the drug addiction, the drug overdoses and things mm-hmm. like that. We're just talking about the, the, I guess, the overall death rate in Ohio. Yeah. And, and here's a kind of a sobering statistic, and this is nationwide, and these are counties. 73% of counties in the U.S. had more deaths than births in 2021. And of course, we've seen stories lately about the declining birth rate here in the U.S., well, and the and the seriously reduced uh, life expectancy rate, which is concerning for people like you and me, Lisa. You don't want to see that rate going down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did people who filled out a survey about a year ago say about what our priorities should be in Cuyahoga County for building a new jail? Layla? Well, Caitlin Durbin stumbled upon this trove of community survey results when she was reviewing all the jail steering committee information ever produced from antiquity to now. And this was survey this survey was circulated about a year ago and the committee collected responses from 375 participants. 200 of them went on to provide more detailed written responses which she found very interesting. Generally, the responses show that the wider community is about as divided as the steering committee is when it comes to where to put this jail. Some say, keep the jail downtown where it can be close to bus lines and transportation. Others say, well, you know, a downtown jail is bad for attracting businesses and residents. So, you know, some say put it in a struggling suburb, give it, give the suburb a tax boost, you know, that sort of thing. The only thing they seem to agree upon is they want free parking wherever it ends up. But when it comes to the overall guiding light for the new jail, the survey respondents did strongly align behind a couple priorities. You know, 63% of the respondents said that creating a, a facility that provides safer and more humane living conditions for inmates and, and working conditions for staff was of the highest importance. And we all know what transpired at the jail that gave rise to the to this conversation in the first place, the inmate deaths and the reports of crowding and poor conditions inside the facility. So that is still... You know, that, that was high, uh, high of mind for the, the people who responded to the survey, and that is still the guiding light for the people who are leading this, this charge. You know, 61% of respondents of the survey ranked it most important to create and locate a facility in a place where it would have the least negative and most positive impact on the surrounding community. Currently, the leading site for the new jail (laughs) is that shipping yard that was once the toxic standard oil refinery. And the second place site was closer to a neighborhood where it would have been in close proximity to a boys and girls club. So how are we doing in meeting that priority? I don't know. I mean, they should be out at the Garfield Heights site. That's where they should be going. Garfield Heights wants it. It's close in. It's right off the interstate. I don't get these guys. There's lots of of other data from Caitlin Surrey, but honestly, my favorite part of the story was the one respondent whose only written comment was, don't screw this up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I was actually heartened that you know, they listed it in terms of priorities. And I, I was heartened that the highest numbers were for building a humane jail. Yeah. We did hear from a former f- public elected official who didn't want his name used, who blasted away at the idea of building a new jail because he says the county simply can't afford it. And he's arguing there should be a much deeper examination mm of redoing the one we have and bringing in much more professional management. The argument is that the reason we're in crisis is because we have screwed it up badly and we should 
figure out a way to be more professional, that a new building alone isn't going to Mm -hmm. make Mm -hmm. us more humane. Interesting, but we do know that modern jail science does call for a more horizontal situation. Yeah, that's true. There are many ways that the jail can be reorganized to achieve, you know, better jailing overall. Um, I mean, if if you've ever toured the facility, you can see it. <laughs> I do hear from a lot of people, though, Layla, who are fed up with the county's profligate spending, the hotel and the medical mart and all these things. They feel like they're tapped out tax-wise and that nobody represents them. It's what Lee Weingart, who's running for county executive, mm-hmm. really is hoping to tap mm-hmm. into. He's trying to tap into the idea that all that waste needs to stop. And Armin Budish is not helping that image right now in the council because they want to plow $46 million into the MedMart. They're moving full steam ahead, it sounds like, to spend $86 million on their slush funds. And for that voter who's out there thinking, man, when does it stop? That's a terrible direction. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. So the jail discussion is we need a better jail, but it is going to cost a fortune that we don't have. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura is chronicling her thoughts as she endures a pretty substantial renovation to her Rocky River house. And she absolutely charmed readers this weekend with the tale of its history. Who was the original owner, Laura? Why do so many people remember her? And what was up with all that green carpet? I don't know why the whole house was carpeted with this green shag. or And all of the, the paneling, a lot of it was painted green. I never saw the house in that state. And a lovely couple who had bought the house from Mrs. Kaiser and owned it for a few years had torn it all out, ripped down the dark drapes, and redid the kitchen. So by the time I saw it, you know, it was like all hardwood and light gray and crisp white trim and like modern farmhouse. But um, the granddaughter of Mrs. Kaiser recently sent me these photos, and I was just kind of shocked to see see the way it looked like this. But this was Mrs. Kaiser's house for most of her 93 years. She lived here as a teenager and then came back as a bride, and everybody knew the house so well because it was one of the only houses on the street for a long time and it owned greenhouses it was a business where people bought their wedding flowers and their homecoming corsages and had acres of green uh, greenhouses where they grew geraniums and snapdragons and all sorts of stuff so when i moved to town i mean people would ask me where i lived i'd start describing my house they're like oh it's mrs kaiser's house and i'm like who is mrs kaiser and she died five years ago i ended up going to the funeral and meeting her family and um, they've just been so warm and welcoming and i i love the story of my house yeah and so do the readers i mean i saw there was a lot of discussion about it on facebook we're trying to to give people some diversion from all the bad news out there they've people have made clear to us that they'd like to have some other things that's why we have a new gardening column and we're trying to roll out some other stuff this is in that vein we're trying to come up with home renovation stories maybe layla will write her own story she's going through a pretty tough one too i will not do it (laughs) (laughs) all right check out laura's story it's on cleveland.com and it will be appearing at intervals over the next few months it's today in ohio it is still two years away but how rare will the coming celestial phenomenon be when it occurs in 2024 when was the last one And when will the next one be? And Lisa, what am I talking about? 
total solar eclipse coming to Cleveland, Ohio. Mark your calendars for April 8th, 2024. This is the first time the Cleveland area Northeast Ohio has been in the path of totality since 1806. It won't happen again until 2099, long after everyone listening to this podcast is gone. So you need to mark your calendars and, and, and view this in your own backyard. Um, about 32 million Americans will be in the path of totality. Now that eclipse we had in 2017, only 12 million people were in that path. So here in in the Cleveland area, it's going to start at 2 o'clock p.m. We'll have totality where it's completely dark at 3.13 p.m. And then it'll last about three minutes and 50 seconds. And the beauty is, is that the sun will be over Lake Erie. So it'll be wonderful viewing, unobstructed view. But the weather has to hold up. I mean, Betsy Kling, my weather maven on WKYC, said last week, and I I don't have the figures because I didn't write it down, but she says in April, there's about a 52% chance of you getting sun on an April day. So that's pretty typical. So keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, that that's the the scary thing is is that we'll get all ready. We'll all have those goofy glasses on and it'll be as gray as it is right now. So I hope it is it is sunny because, like you said, we won't be around for the next one. Cool story by Pete Krause. I know it's two years away, but remember how hard it was to get those glasses last time. Right. Order them right. now. <laughs> exactly. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's do one more. We reported more than a week ago about the theft of a $20,000 guitar owned by a prominent musician. So we wondered, what makes a guitar worth $20,000? Courtesy of a story by freelancer Zachary Lewis, we now know. Layla, what's the answer? So this guitar was owned by classical guitarist Berta Rojas, who says she spent six hours a day for the past 14 hours playing that instrument, which she called La Rojita, and that it was at the height of its sounding capability when it was stolen recently. She was in town to play for the Cleveland Classical Guitar Society. She has earned three Latin Grammy Award nominations for music featuring that guitar. And in fact, La Rojita had been featured on a new recording just days before it was stolen. This guitar was made by world-renowned Irish guitar craftsman Michael O'Leary, but factored into that 20,000 valuation are a number of other variables related to the, the way this instrument sounds, its craftsmanship, its overall quality. O'Leary guitars are known to be on the louder side, a quality that Shaker Heights guitar dealer Armin Kelly told Zach Lewis is increasingly prized by performers today. Also, you have to consider the taxes, the import fees, the costs associated with shipping the guitar from Ireland. Basic economics also play a role because O'Leary likely only makes a few instruments every year and he does it by hand. These instruments are really hard to come by. The, and also, you know, the very fact that Rojas chose and stuck with this particular guitar also contributes to its value. There's clearly something very special about it. If an acclaimed artist chose it, it must be a responsive intra- instrument with a really unique structure to it. 
um, you know, on a, an, an instrument right out of the factory. You can play it any way you want, Kelly said, and you get the same sound every time. But this one is very personal. She was playing it by choice, which means she counts on it. But none of that means anything to a thief, which is kind of the silver lining here. If this if this guitar turns up at a pawn shop, it will stand out to the police in a second. And anyone who's prepared to spend $20,000 on a guitar will know that this is stolen and will turn it into police. And, you know, there's there's uh, um, there's really nowhere for this thief to turn. <laughs> so well, the smartest thing is to just turn it in for the reward. That's money right. And get right. Thousand bucks and no questions asked. But but it's a fascinating story about it. And this maker is a rare one because there's three prominent musicians using his guitars. And most makers are happy if they get one. I read in Zach's story. You know, so check it out. I was trying oh, to think while I was reading this story about anything in my life that I value as much as this woman values her guitar. Do you guys have anything similar? I was trying to imagine like what could be stolen from me? Like what possession could be stolen from me that I would feel as forlorn as this musician feels right now? Do you, can you guys think of anything? I, I would value her, no. I mean, that guitar to her must be worth so much more than $20,000. That's her entire livelihood, and she's played it for you know nearly two decades. I can think of nothing in my whole you know home that I value as much as that. I have some woodworking tools I made that I'd be pretty uh, forlorn. They have a long provenance and family history that I'd be upset about losing. I wouldn't value them at twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> but, but I would hate to see them go. And I hope they stay in the family for a long time. It's a good story by Zachary Lewis. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that wraps up a Monday. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast.